Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or get two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Anglican ordinands studying in the UK, Ireland or the Diocese in Europe are eligible for a free subscription while they study. Apply at churchtimes.co.uk forward slash ordinands. And join us on Tuesday the 29th of September for a virtual festival of preaching. Speakers include Mark Oakley, Rachel Mann and Malcolm Geit. To find out more, visit festivalofpreaching.hymnsam.co.uk My name is Testament, I'm a rapper and playwright and I'm here speaking with um, Leroy Logan, a former detective superintendent of the Met, uh, one of the key founders of not only the London Black uh, Police Association, but the National Black Police Association, Association as well, and the, and the first chairman, um, now retired and continuing to be a massive voice into areas of uh, justice, community relations, and a voice into the nation, I think, a very important person. And um, I wanted to ask you very quickly about um, the sort of bizarre circumstances or, or really difficult trying circumstances, should I say, about you'd applied for, to become a police officer and then uh, circumstances sort of took a turn where actually that could be a really difficult thing to do and for your family to accept. I wonder if you could tell us a bit. Yeah, about. yeah. Well, basically, um, I was a research scientist, which my dad was really pleased that I was possibly going into medicine because he always wanted me to be a doctor or be involved in science. So, you know, uh, went through uni I, I, and from uni I went into the uh, medical unit at the Royal Free and, you know, that, that was my life. That, that was where I, I saw my um, type of area of work. And then um, the, the calling of police and sort of hit on, on quite a bizarre way, started to see um, police officers in a totally personal way because um, at the Royal Free, they used to use our sporting facilities and the bar. And, you know, I meet these guys in the gym and in the bar. I didn't know there were cops. And, you know, they would say to me, oh, um, you know, what do you do? And I say, I work as a researcher. Uh, what do you do? I'm a cop. So I start to see them <laughs> in a personal view. And then that's zoomed me back to Jamaica when I was a youngster. And I used to see police officers looking really um well very slick very well presented and um i well i said well i've seen that um in jamaica and i could see myself doing that and they used to take me on drive rounds you know and see what they're doing and, um you know but policing but in, but in jamaica different. you went on you went on drive rounds no no no. i was too young then but no oh, I, I mean when i was in the, um, Hampstead, oh, yeah, um the yeah. You know, yeah yeah just early 80s before i joined uh, or applied in 82 so they took me on drive rounds and, you know, but, you know, policing in Hampstead is totally different to anywhere else, you know, very mm. pleasant, nice places and, you know, people are much more reasonable. And um, so I got a taster of it. And then my boss was giving me an assessment, uh, my normal annual assessment. And he said, you know, Leroy, I can't see you being a, a research scientist for the next 20, 30 years. And I, I said, why not? He said, no, it works good. No problem about that. You're getting well. But I think the sort of personality you are, I think you could be doing something you know, a bit more people orientated because instead of being stuck at a lab, I said, what, like what? I said, oh, you could be, become a cop. I said, do I look like a racist thug, you know? That's what was in my mind. And I, was like, I couldn't believe that. Because of my experience, 
you know, in the 60s and 70s, you know, when I came back from Jamaica uh, after that visit, and then, you know, the sus law really hit me hard. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, there's no way I could become a cop. And then, um, but I still applied because, uh, you know, I spoke to my fiance, with my, my wife now, um, and she said, well, maybe you should try it, you know. And I thought, okay, I'll try it. And then while I'm applying, you know, and I didn't tell my dad or my, my mother, um, my, my father, unfortunately, got badly beaten by police because, you know, he, he was just um, parking up his lorry while he was um, just getting some chips. And a, he was a truck driver at that point. Is, is that yeah, right? yeah, it, was, it wasn't a, a massive HGV, Arctic type stuff. It was, you know, one of the smaller trucks, you know, and, and they said that he was blocking the road. So he, he said, fine, you know, well, I'll be going not guilty at court. Maybe they didn't like that attitude. And, you know, he started to measure the distance from the side of his van to the, the car on the other side of the road. And without that, an unprovoked beating, I'm quite a savage beating because when I get a call, from my, uh, my sister, my mother saying, dad's in hospital uh, and the circumstances behind it. Um, I, I walked into A&E, I walked right past him. I didn't even realize it was him because he was so contorted. It was literally black and blue. And, um, and then, you know, I, I asked him what happened and he told me, and I, you know, I thought, no way am I joining the police. I mean, they could do this to a, a middle-aged guy. He's not a troublemaker. He's never been in trouble with the police. What, what, why would you do that? Um, but you know, and then I went back to my boss and said, "Listen, Roy, you know this is what's happened. I'm not going to do it again." He said, "Listen, maybe that's the reason why you should join." And then Gretel was saying the same thing, you know, and and then a community activist called Jesse Stevens, who's a mother of a close friend of mine, and and Jesse said, "You know, this is what we want. You need a more reflective organisation to stop these sort of things." I said, but mom, it's just me, you know. But anyway, um, unfortunately, my dad found out. <laughs> Uh, the hard way because uh, in those days when you're applying for the Met you have to join they have to come and visit your premises and um, as part of the joining process and unfortunately they didn't uh, get the memo that I'd moved on you know I moved mm -hmm. on to Highbury then no longer at my parents house because you know I was with um, my wife then and um, they said well you know um, they visited my dad's house and you know how I found out. I get a phone call from them saying, "Leroy, there's police, police at my door. What they're doing here?" I said, "Why, why, why?" They said, "You're joining the police. You're joining the mess, Dad." Uh, uh, yeah, I went to tell you. And oh, gosh, I don't know why I delayed, but I couldn't find a time to really sit down and say, "Dad, those cops who beat you up, I might be working with them." Why? Wow. And anyway, and, and he put down the phone on me, and and I was devastated. And then you know, eventually went round and said to him, "Dad, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have told you." Um, and he was, you know, very, very upset with me, not just because I'm joining the police, but because I was going to be a scientist with possibility of being a doctor. Anyway, it ends up that um, he, he turned that around, you know, to his real uh, courage and, and, and qualities as a man, just to say, listen, I can see that this is something you want to do. And, um, you know, and even Jesse, she talked to him as well, even though he wasn't very happy. But it showed itself that literally the day before I was going to Hendon and, and my dad sort of drove me there totally un unexpected, wow. which was really good. He gave us a time to really get to, to know from my heart why I was joining. And, um, you know, he was supportive uh, right the way through until, you know, he passed away. Uh, it's incredible. It, it seems like 
from the from the onset there was like you you went there almost to with, with very strongly at the back of your mind or at the front of your mind to be a catalyst for change to um to represent a community and to try and change the rep, how the how the met represents uh, london and, and 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 different different backgrounds um it reminds me also a lot of um the biblical story of um people like joseph and daniel people that have come from one culture and implanted into a place of influence in another culture to make it more just to make it more fair like i myself as a as a rapper um i didn't really i've never really operated so much in the sort of the gospel arena like i've often been a resource for church the church have rung me up and gone oh can you perform at our youth event or da, 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 that's fine but my thing has always been to be part of um the hip-hop culture more widely rather than in a just a, just rapping in christian churches which i love doing but that's a different thing about giving a christian perspective on life through your lyrics um so whether i'm talking about what it is to like to live in a city or talking about race in my lyrics and my bars then you know like i've always felt like as, as a christian you know you want to be that salt and light isn't it that's what jesus yeah. talks about and trying to be right. an positive positive force wherever wherever your marketplace is you know jesus went to the marketplace to preach and what have you and um i feel like my marketplace was was hip-hop and now it's sort of expanded into theater somewhat and yours you seem to have like you you also had right from the onset like i'm going to be a, a catalyst to change earlier on we, before before this recording we said if you see it you can be it yeah yeah absolutely and, and that, that for me you know because that cultural immersion in jamaica for those uh, few years in the early 60s was ph- phenomenal for for, for self-empowerment because i saw not only black cops black doctors nurses teachers you know black prime minister mm. even and, and 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 as a result of that i you know I, I really said well as you say if you see it you can be it and as a result of that i i wasn't stunted in my view of what i could do i wasn't going to allow anyone to with with their assumptions on me or stereotypes to prevent me from aspiring to be something of you know real significance and and i wasn't going to be you know um, buying into their false narrative for my life I saw it, unfortunately, in, in, in some of my, my uh, black friends who didn't know any better because they grew up over here. And I suppose in a lot of ways they were downtrodden by so, so many of the injustices and inequalities um, in the education system, in the policing system, you know, the, the justice system. So, you know, they, they felt, well, I couldn't do it because they hadn't seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I used to talk about Jamaica a lot, but they just really couldn't get it, you know. And um, I, I found that, for me, it, it said, well, there's a reason for you to, to join the Met. It is going to be your worst nightmare, but there's something going to come through. And, and I suppose I saw that in the first stages of going into Hendon because they were having a recruitment drive for um, people of African, Caribbean and Asian origins. And um, so there was about... About ten of us, you know, um, all joining about the same time. In fact, one of my my schoolmates he had joined a few uh, weeks earlier. And they asked, "What are you doing there? What are you doing there?" Leroy, how many in a, in a year at Hendon passing out? You know, to, to... well, I mean, they used to be like, uh, weekly classes. So in, in a class, it's about 20, 25 uh-huh. people. Okay, so well. yeah, an intake is in those days was each week. Um, it changed to the blocks of six weeks, and then they, you know, they change it all the time. When, when I joined on the 20-week foundation course, you, you know, there's about each 
week was about 25 in a class and then you know it, you know it, it, it quick turnover that way and you know I, I, so I, I was really pleased that, that I could see other people who, who look like me uh, and you know we started to build close friendship you know even though your white colleagues you know other white recruits saying what you know what is what you're doing you know you know you must be plotting and planning something you black oh officers God. are always talking <laughs> oh yeah, because, is there assumptions and stereotypes of black people out in the street you know or their experience before they joined the met so um no but we still we we we, we kept that camaraderie which was really important so for me that was a like a confirmation thing this is the time and we're we're here for a reason you know mm -hmm. and we and and and, and Progressive people, you know that. Did, did, you, feel felt, a lot of that, yeah. did you feel a lot of that cohort cohort had the similar thinking that we're gonna we're gonna be change makers in this organisation? Yeah, you got that sense, you know, because um, in those days they they really were looking at people who had those good qualities and 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 a certain level of, of higher education and you know wanted to uh, ensure that you get high caliber candidates, you know. So yeah, we, we, we're all on the same page of, well, we, we're going to do the best we can. And, and you know, understand that, uh, you know, and they were very similar in, in thinking, um, I'm, I'm a black officer who happens to be a cop and not vice versa. So that was really important because um, it, it meant that you integrated and bringing in your principles and values and culture um, understanding and not assimilating to the norms and values of the culture, which can be very, um, well, I, I call it like an internal radicalization. It, it can actually take you over. Did you see people go on that journey? Um, Absolutely. White, white officers? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, even at training school, you know, they, they adopt the swagger and, and, and the whole vernacular. You know, they're like old sweats and they've only got two weeks in the job, you know, and they, they, they just, you know, they get it, a lot of it from the staff, you know, because the mm. staff have a certain persona and, you know, it's that demonas, macho, testosterone driven culture. And it's easy to fall in line because it's, uh, you know, you're surrounded by it and, you know, it, it can easily fuel your assumptions even before you hit the streets. Um, as I said, you know, when I did the drive around in Hampstead, it was all leafy suburbs, <laughs> lovely people. but you know, if you're going to a Hackney, where, as you say, it's a lot more challenging, you know, and you you hear, oh, by the way, you're going to Hackney. They think, oh, my word, God, you're in trouble, mate. So it conditions you mm. and, and it already, already creates that them and us adversarial um, positions. And, and that's even before you even put a foot on the streets. And especially if you're out of London, um, you don't know the area. Because, mm. you know, even though I went to Islington, um, which is um, next to Hackney, I didn't find any sort of um, concern about that because I grew up in the area. I knew, mm. you know, how people move and how, you know, certain people, they're dangerous people, really with where they stay or how they deal with things and how to spot them, etc. cetera. Mm. Um, but everyone else is reasonable people and yeah, some great people. And... Um, so I didn't find any fear. And, you know, I went to college in Hackney. So, again, you know, if you can survive as a student in Hackney, you can survive <laughs> anywhere. You know, you're going to be streetwise. So, and, and, and sometimes I have to tell the officers in, in recruit school, it's not that bad. Please, don't, don't, don't buy into that narrative. Um, so I, I believe 
that we had a role to give some on-the-job education and on-the-job training for uh, our, our recruit colleagues just to say, listen, please don't buy into this sort of thing. But, you know, it's, it's easier said than done because, you see, one of the things where the culture is so strong, if you challenge and you've got team members who think, well, you can't be trusted, it might have some risk on your literal well-being. So if you're getting a kick in somewhere on the high street and you call up, and say, listen, urgent assistance, and they see you as a bit of a troublemaker, mm. they might find some, oh, something wrong with the radio, can't hear your location. Mm. So it's got, you know, some real um, risk that could have life and death implications. So that, that's, that's all these things you have to, to deal with. And, and I made it clear, for, once I've gotten to um, Islington Borough, my, my first um, unit, I, I said, listen, I'm going to patrol on my own. You know, I'm not going to buy into this. I've got to rely on officers um, because I knew the mm. terrain. And yeah. maybe if I was going to somewhere totally different, like a Lambeth or, a, you know, a, a Southwark in the in the mm. in the south of London, I might be totally different. But because I knew the area, and I, you know, I was able to um, make sure I, I got to somewhere that I felt home, and it was my home borough. So I, I just said that I don't really need to rely on officers to that extent. You know, and obviously that meant dealing with people in a way that you're not just going to create hostility. You're um, escalating rather than escalating. Exactly. I've got a question. I've got a question because, like, obviously, eighties like racism in any workplace really like was more overt. And and I think a lot of people of colour have choices to make. Like, how far do you stick up? Which battles do you pick? You know, if someone makes a little offhand comment in the office, and it's your and it's your manager. Um, you know, like, when do you take someone to task for it? When do you complain and stuff like that? And there seems to be, like, a lot of... Some people could be what, what I call a Black Dave, which is, like, you sit in the office and, you, oh, which Dave is it? Oh, it's Black Dave, you know? Yeah, and yeah. you sort of sit there and you kind of become part of the culture and you kind of maybe even... And you sort of allow the racism to, <laughs> to wash over you. I've got a question about the type of person that, uh, that joins the police force, really, which is um, in terms of people of colour. Some people like yourself have got quite a strong, ob ob almost an objective to go in there and make a difference um, in terms of the racial uh, stuff and, the, and, and, and making a difference in representation. Other people perhaps have got, I'm sure most people go in there because they think it's a good job and they want to be a positive force and they want to stop the bad guys and all that. Um, but did you come across any people of colour who perhaps took on that self-hatred or became sort of morphed into the culture? Yeah, yeah very much so. Um, you know, some of them were you know, quite close to me. As I said, I, I, I met a guy, we went to school together and he adopted that, that way. Well, listen, I'm not in here to speak up for anyone else. I just want to get my career. Um, I'm not bothered about, you know, systemic failures. In all honesty, uh, I, I, literally I'm buying to that culture that, you know, take care of it, your own type, type of stuff. And I couldn't believe it because, you know, he's from the Caribbean like me. He was, you know, someone who grew up with me in secondary school. So, you know, I, I was shocked. And it was amazing how we have a similar background, but divergent in so many wow. ways, because I, I saw the need not just to, to, to speak up for myself, but to advocate for other people. Uh, and, and I was doing that even as a constable, you know, um, internally, um, I'd, I'd speak up for uh, people. And I, again, I think it's because I was a bit older, because I was 26 mm -hmm. when I joined, 
most people who joined was in their early, sorry, late teens, early 20s. So, um, you yeah, know. work experience and life experience already, hadn't you? Yeah, and then they knew I was a graduate. They knew I had, you know, quite a, a unique job as a research scientist, you know, and it, but which built this suspicion of me, thinking, you know, I've got to watch this one. Mm. Um, you know, it, 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 and no disrespect to other professions, but the professions they do attract a normally, um, you know, seen as working class, um, blue collar type work uh -huh. in, in those days. Um, so I would be seen, even I used to wear a white lab coat, but that's about it. I never wore a white <laughs> collar shirt or anything, you know. And so, but they saw it, saw me as that, you know. Uh, and um, so that again, um, fueled this hostility um especially if one of the one of the colleagues got beaten up by someone you know whether it, um it's from a minority group or a certain type of people that would permeate through, through the entire unit you know we've got to watch them i saw the things with um travelers you know um you know oh watch that um gypsy oh yeah they're up to no good all these assumptions you know and, and i thought to myself come on come on um it can't be like this and you know but yeah, and coming back to your question, you've got to choose your battles wisely. You know, it's not every single thing you, you've got to challenge, but there's certain times. And I remember when I was, um, uh, I've been on the, the borough um, a, a few years, and uh, I remember um, I was in charge of a department of intelligence, uh, divisional intelligence unit. And um, I was just... Um, clearing up and uh, I had this tray of cups and saucers from my office and you know clearing up you would take turns to clear up yeah. and I was just walking out the office and it was a corridor that when there was an emergency call people just bolted through you know mm -hmm. to get to the vehicles and, and and get to that emergency call and I literally as I came out the office boom the tray went everywhere I was covered in oh tea dregs and everything and I was fuming and they just turned around looked laughed and ran off and i, I was I, really upset and uh you know and i think that it, it it was their opportunity to get their own back on me for some reason you know because i i suppose they might see me as a bit, a bit of a smart alec no it were they actually up. on a were they actually on a call like rushing out or were they just like yeah yeah they were they were they didn't, so when they, they didn't apologize the no 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 but i, I thought okay c calm down mm -hmm. when they cleared up the mess change for clothes and I happened to be in the control room, when in the control room, when a lot of them came back. And they were all laughing, laughing and joking. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some people don't know how to clear up properly. They wear the tea, not make the tea, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then one of them was a sergeant. No. And he chipped in, he chipped in. And I thought, right. And I, I just, again, I don't know where the Lord just brought this strength in me. Because in those days, sergeants were like gods. You don't yeah, yeah. talk back, you know, you know. And I said, Sarge. You're a supervisor. Why don't you act like one? And I walked out, and you could hear the tumbleweed in this control room. You know, you could hear a pin drop. It was a jaw-dropping moment. Everyone thought, "Oh, what?" And obviously, it reduced that sergeant down to, you know, you should, you can't be a sergeant with stripes. You can't be keeping that um, camaraderie at expense of your supervisory and leadership role. And, um, you know, he, he never spoke to me, ever, again. In, in fact, it wasn't on my team anyway. I was, I was dealing with that unit. Years later, years mm -hmm. later, I'm now an inspector 
So I've gone up two ranks. He's still a sergeant and he's now working at Hendon. I went back as a, an intake manager. And, uh, and where I really saw that rad internal radicalization piece, you know, really mm -hmm. present itself. And I knew it was him. But, you know, I said, I'm not going to say anything to him. And about, because yeah, he was working in um, cur um, the curriculum development unit. And um, a few months have gone by and he came up to me and said, Leroy, I really apologise about that incident. And this yeah. was about, so this is like 1998, 99. Yeah. So this is like 15 years, yeah. <laughs> 10, at least 10, 12 years um, yeah. earlier. And I said, well, you know, the, these things obviously need to be dealt with at the time. But I accept the apology, even though it's almost 10 years ago or more than 10 <laughs> years ago. And, um, but, and in, in the end, we, 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 we turned out well. But, you know, just that intervention, mm. you know, really meant a lot to him that he had to resolve that sort of thing. Yeah. And, um, and I, was glad, I was glad that, you know, I, I picked that battle because that went across the borough. I, I think it went all over the map black PC talk to a sergeant like what? Ouch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was an ouch moment. Absolutely. <laughs> That's great. Um, a stereotype in, in, in this country where um, people from a Caribbean background um, versus people from an African background and how well they do in education and stuff. And there's some, some of that is borne out in statistics at schools and stuff like African uh, backgrounds, you know, the sort of later wave of immigration often um, seem to be doing better than uh, people from a Caribbean background. Whereas in America and in New, in New York, Caribbean people seem to be like achieving more than the African American uh, people. So there's like a different sort of stereotype. Oh, you're Caribbean. That means you must do well at school. Whereas here, it's like the opposite. What do you think yeah. it is about Britain that What's was it? Is it Britain? Like, what's the reason why there's this? Because people think of black as one homogenous group, but it's not at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think having um, you know, spoken to a lot of my family and relatives and you know, colleagues and friends, it when when you go over to um, America, you know, they, they actually racism's on your sleeve. Everyone wears it. But mm -hmm. the good thing about it is. You know, part of the American dream is, as an immigrant, you can go in and achieve. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be a bit different now with Trump and all this nonsense, but you know that that's it, that's in essence what it, it's all about. So they do appreciate that. You know, as long as you've got good education, you can achieve. Mm -hmm. um, over here, but but but, and you know where the racism's coming at you. It's coming front and center. Mm -hmm. What I think over here is there is this microaggression that chipped away, it's very insidious. It erodes, it's like, it's, you know, it's like um, the torture by a thousand cuts, you know, it's yeah, small yeah. little cuts that just slowly break you down, wear you out. It, 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 it then starts to chip away your self-esteem, your sense of hope and aspirations. And it just, you know, before you know it, you're a, a remnant of what you used to be. Mm -hmm. You know, and, 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 you know, you've missed your true potential. So if you, if, if you don't know how to spot that, and sometimes it might come from even people that look like us, you know, we mm -hmm. have a shared common experience, but it's like, no, oh, man, you, you shouldn't be doing this, you know. And, and so you really be, have to be discerning 
to know what that wh wh where is that voice coming from is that really coming genuinely from your heart you you re really have the best for me or are you part of the problem and that's why some of our um black colleagues could be part of the problem and 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 you know will not rock the boat regardless of what the plight of others are or even mm -hmm. the plight for themselves you know i'm a great believer if you keep your head in the sand eventually your your butt's gonna get kicked you know and, and as a result of that you know you, you've got to step up for not only for yourself but for others and and that, that that's where you know we, we 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 need to recognize what's happening over here and 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 how it plays itself out and not only in policing but you know in in all public services and, and private organizations and how it, it builds from school you know sometimes in the home you know if a person's in care or whatever and how mm -hmm. it builds through these sort of things um it, you know and that's why i was so blessed having the parents i had we didn't have much but my parents loved and nurtured my sister myself to say listen you can be um, anything you want just work hard excellence is the best deterrent and don't let anyone derail you from what you want to do hey. you know and, and it was it's as simple as that that's that's big and um, so I'm I'm a father of three. Like you, you've got three as well, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're gonna have to give me some tips, but um, <laughs> you're further, yeah. further down the line. Yeah. I call it three Megadon. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it doesn't change, mate. You know, even when in their the thirties and twenties, they're exactly the same challenges. <laughs> I mean, I've got I'm blessed with three grandchildren. They're sort of six. Yeah. Um, my grandson's six, and my two granddaughters are three, uh, both three. And uh, I, I, I mean, it's it's great. It's so. I, I've been blessed that um, two out of three have actually been living at home with us during lockdown because mm -hmm. they've live, been living with us for the last um, four years, four years uh, in October. And, um, you know, it's been such a blessing. Uh, and you learn so much about, you know, your children because now they're parents and you see how they're operating, you know. So, so, no, I, so yeah, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't really change. It's just that the scale of the problem increases. <laughs> oh, really? Well, thanks yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah, no, don't worry. Be, better be prepared for these things, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, like, there's a thing about, like, black fathers, and there's a whole stereotype surrounding that. And there's, and there's also, like, black... I mean, I, I've come from hip-hop. That was my way into my career, is, like, hip-hop. Um, where it's, like, this super machismo, like black man is strong, he's got money, all the girls, all this kind of, a lot of it is nonsense, quite frankly. Mm. And um, I, I find that really interesting. But in your book, you mentioned this phrase, which is tender warrior, which really spoke to me in thinking about what that is. I mean, like, yeah, I, 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 it's funny because my dad's white and he's quite a gentle dude, like an English teacher with glasses. That's my dad. My mum's yeah. a guy in a strong Ghanaian woman um, and a bit of a, a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. My, my, my mom's yeah. um, so like my conception of maleness comes a lot from my dad, who's a white dude, as I say, from Mitchum. Um, yeah. You know, so I don't I sort of, I've got it from hip hop. And like when I was young, I was thinking a little bit about that. But even then I was more into like, you know, the Della Souls and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. That's what got, got me going, you know, so which is not, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is not, you know, I, as well. yeah. yeah. So, so it's not, it's not the thugged out iced tea stuff. Although I did appreciate some of that Wu-Tang and all that. I definitely appreciate the fan of some of that stuff, but like I didn't internalize it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and, that, and that's the thing, you know, um, it's like, you know, be, be in the world, but not of it. You know, you, you're not mm. actually taking on um, those things. But, 
you know, for me, it, being a tender warrior is, is, listen, you can have that strength of character and stand up for yourself and others, but you need to be cognizant of how people can find that you are unapproachable because, you know, you look like, you know, the barn door type stuff, you know, yeah. the brick wall. And, you know, and that will put, you know, push people away from you. So it's a question of getting that mix of being, you know, sensitive and, you know, passionate and, and, and knowing that pastoral side, um, you know, because, you know, even in policing, it's not all about feeling colours, blue sirens, you know, mm. um, sirens and blue lights and everything like that. Mm. You know, it's about problem solving. It's building relationships. It's understanding people's position, you know, because I know if it wasn't for, you know, the family I had, I could have easily be on on road and getting on to yeah. all sorts of things, you know, because I, I know that uh, one of the guys I grew up with, he got involved in a major, major um, crime, um, basically a gang rape. And I could have easily been with him. If my mother hadn't said, listen, Leroy, you will do these chores. Do not leave the house until they're done. And then when he finished, I can tell you when you can go out. Mm. Well, if I just said, I'm doing what I want, I could have been caught up in that thing. Wow. Easily. And, and that changed his entire life. So, you know, I, I feared my parents more than the authorities, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know in, 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 and being fearful, like we, we fear God, you know, of respect and love. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wasn't, I, I, I wasn't going to upset them um, and, and, well, intentionally. And so I, I had to make sure that my, my peers knew that. The pecking order was parents first, peers second. Now it's reversed. You got a lot through social media and other sort of uh, discourse. Peer groups seem to have more of an influence than parental groups. You know, because I've been running a charity called Void Youth, and we've been running for twenty years. And as years go by, you you hear them saying that their friends mean more to them than their parents. They learn more from their peers than their parents. And and you know, that for me, that it's like the blind leading the blind. You know. I mean, part of a, part of things that I found as a challenge as a, as a, as a dad, because you're trying to do career. So for me, I'm trying to work on this project and that project, and then I'm doing stuff in the prison over here, youth thing, and then I'm doing all that, and you know, and, and, and I love it, and I'm passionate about it, and I feel that's my purpose. But at the same time, I've got to be present for my kids and be a, a presence in their life, and 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 have that real strong strong bond. One of the things that I was reading when when I was reading your book, I was like, okay. Now, Mr. Logan's doing this, and now he's setting that up. And then, what? He's just saved the world. What? He just, he just <laughs> caught that guy. And then, what? And, then, and I'm like, and he's got three kids. Like, how's he doing that? What's, what's going on there? Supportive wife. Very supportive wife. Um, <clears throat> I mean, Gretel had her own career in the city of London. So I, I really don't know how we, we, we fit in so much time because, you know, um, policing just to be an officer is enough. Plus, mm-hmm. my, not, not to mention setting up uh, an association like the, the Black Police Association, and then on top of that, being uh, one of the founder members and chair and all these sort of things. And then you're doing like leadership courses and- Yeah, oh. yeah. Yeah, with Voyage and everything. So, I mean, I, I think it's like everything, you know, when, when you've got that sort of um, foundation and, you know, because I used to say to Gretel, you know, we're blessed. We've both got careers. You know, we've got the support of our parents. Uh, and, you know, our children are, are, are loved. 
you know, but sometimes it did take over because I, I mean, um, Gretel left me because I was just so consumed by it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had to, well, God gave me a time out sign by breaking my ankle. You know? <laughs> he said, well, yeah, yeah. that's it. Stop. You know, you, you, you just need, you need someone to literally broke your ankle and just calm down. Uh, and uh, which I thought was a bit extreme, but hey, it got my attention. <laughs> There's that bit in, um, uh, I think it's, it's, Gen it's Gen uh, it must be Genesis, uh, where Jacob is wrestles with, with an angel in the, in the yeah, thing yeah. and he gets a limp. Yeah, yeah. I heard one preacher one, one time say, never trust uh, someone who hasn't got a limp. Because that means they've had to keep running with God, do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, actually, um, yeah, I should have added that in the book. But anyway, <laughs> second book, second book. But yeah, yeah well, no, I, I must have got more adventures going on. No, but I, I must admit, it, it was, it was, and, and even till this day, I can't do high impact sports because, you know, it, it my, my ankle was ruined. Fortunately, I can still walk and do a bit of jogging and cycling, but. Mm. you know all that high impact stuff going through but you know it was such uh, it was so clear to me that you know you're doing all this stuff being busy but what expense and and you can't allow your first ministry be a victim of that you know your wow. first ministry is your family you know what i mean wow. that that's the one where you've got to build as much um support and love for, for your children and your wife and of course your your wider family and and, and friends because those relationships are key to who you are and how, how you want to maintain your life. And, you know, you don't end up as a lonely old so-and-so, you know, dying on your own. And you hear so much of that. And um, mm. so, yeah, you've got to invest in, in your family. I, I'm not saying it's perfect, trust me. <laughs> but your yeah. wife to leave you, you know, you, you've upset her. Um, the really good thing is, you know, I, I'm so pleased that, you know, we, we, we got through it. and you know, there, there's a sort of legacy to all of this. There's mm. things to show for it. Because, you know, even though we set up the Black Police Association in, in 94, we was giving ourselves a 10-year shelf life. But the issues are still ongoing. That's why it's over 25 years old, you know. Mm. And, and I'm still a paid-up member cause, and, and I still get involved in a lot of issues. And people come to me directly as I'm, you know, I, I had to deal with something even up to yesterday, which was life and death circumstances. So. You know, once you've got public service in your system, you can't just switch it off, you know? And, and, and the, you know, the Lord makes a way, you know, where it appears to be no way. And, and he gives you the time. Um, sometimes when I, when I was writing the book and I was reflecting back, I thought, similar to what you just said, how did I squeeze that all in? How did Gretel do all that? Yeah. You know, how did we grow up three children? And we're not perfect, but they're rounded individuals, you know, and, and they've got careers. And they don't feel that, they can't go out in the in the world and survive you know and and they feel i'm really proud of them you know my first two um are teachers um, my daughter's a teacher and a pro she's doing a master's my eldest son he's a music teacher got his own business my youngest son works for my oldest son and on and, and, you know that sort of thing for me i want them to be able to stand up for themselves and solve their problems and I think that's what parenting is all about. Your children watch you, how you deal with problems. And if you deal with the problems in a reasonable, under, you know, coherent way, they think, oh, I remember when mom and dad was telling my children this, that, and the other, you know, I'll adopt it for my children. So, you know, you just want to make sure that they're rounded individuals, you know, 
want them to be God-fearing and understanding their relationship with the Lord and, you know, be discerning, you know, with the, the Holy Spirit as their guide. That's powerful. Like, it's interesting because um, I wanted to ask you a bit about faith, if I may. Um, yeah, yeah. Because you had this sort of, um, God got you out of a sticky situation, which the listeners can read about in the book. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite a few, actually. But yeah, there was yeah. Well, again, another life and death situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in, in Jamaica, when during your part of the childhood, your, the Jamaican childhood going on there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then and, and there's a little story about how you were like a sort of uh, preach, preaching as a kid <laughs> um, and sort of enjoying that. And then sort of like in the book, faith kind of like dissipates for a while. And we see you get really, you, you feel a calling to the force. Um, and you get involved in all this stuff, and then there's, there's the marital problems that she talked about, and then faith kind of comes back in a in a really more present way. Like, what was going on during that wilderness period in terms of your faith, and then also like, what's the difference now? Well, you know, it, I don't think it was. I was just totally um, absent. Lord, I've always felt that you know that, that presence. And we used to go to the local church in, in, in Highbury. Uh, and when we moved into East London, we went to a local church. Because we want our children to know the Lord and have their own relationships. But, you know, I just think I was just so absorbed in policing and what the role. And it was also about finding, finding my role. You know, I, I felt, all right, I was taking promotion, constable, sergeant. And, you know, I felt, okay. I've got that, but there's something else I'm searching for. And I suppose it's in the searching for it, I miss um, a certain amount of, you know, grounding in the church and, and, and in the fellowship. So, yeah, I, I was searching for, and then obviously when um, we had the founder member meeting of, of the, what eventually became the Black Police Association, and, it, uh, but I don't know if uh, you recall in the book, it, it was actually the same month that Stephen Lawrence was um, yeah, killed well. in April 93. But we didn't know that at the time, you know, the case wasn't that high profile and, you know, we, we'd keep our head down because, you know, if they knew that we were meeting to challenge the organization, you know, internally as well as externally, we, you know, we would have been persona non grata, you know. The Federation would have really just, well, tried to eliminate us in, in terms of what we wanted to do. They kind of did like uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, oh, yeah. They, they, they never stop. Even now in retirement on social media, you know, the, the, the certain federation type individuals are always having a go. You know, some are current officers in disguise, or some are, are just um, retired officers. Uh, most of them are abroad, but they are terrible. You know, that the social media trolls, you know, whether it's on Twitter mm. or Facebook or Facebook, as I call it. But, you know, <laughs> it's, it, you know it's, all, it's all of these things that you thought, well, okay. Let, let's let's keep it going but but i suppose once i found you know especially when I, I broke my ankle literally two months after giving my life to christ and i thought is this how you would pay me <laughs> yeah. you just saw you just mentioned giving your life to christ was that the first time you sort of consciously were like you know what yeah god you're in charge absolutely and that that that's you know exactly that that's how it was you know Okay. That must be quite hard because you mentioned earlier you've got grit and stubborn, a stubborn streak and all that. And you, you know, you want to be in control. You want to know your business and you want to get on and do it. Yeah. And yeah. faith wise, you're saying my life is in your control. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and because and, I knew I was going into certain corridors of power, um, 
and, and, it, and it, he had to be with me, you know. And so if I went into any situation where it's operationally or strategically, I wasn't on my own, you know. Mm-hmm. I've got the heavenly host behind me. Uh, I've got the, the holy nation. I've got the Holy Spirit. So I'm set, you know. But I had to be totally adherent to what the Lord was telling me to do and how to do it, uh, you know, through his word, through prayer, through fasting, you know. And everywhere I went, I would be saying, Lord, claim that ground. So if I'm going into that meeting with chief constables or the home secretary, whoever, claim that ground. That's holy ground. So when I go in there, you know, I'll prep up for my meetings, but I know you will give me the word in season. And, I, and practically every situation was like that. I, I love that. There was one bit where you we were just going up for an event, which... Um... I was in Manchester, I forget, and, and you just had this feeling that you should bring your wife with you. And that actually oh, turned yeah. out that later on, I mean, I think, I think that's just amazing. I think people should read that. Don't, don't tell them about that. It's just, it was like, when you flag it up earlier on in the chapter, I'm like, okay, why is that? Why is that? And then later on, like, you're like, oh, wow, that was really spiritually significant. And like, oh, yeah. significant is incredible. And, and is, that, is that discerning spirit? You know, especially my mother, she, she had that um, from... When, when you're in Jamaica, certain people you can't run with really understand how the Lord speaks to you. And, and that discerning spirit really hit home once, uh, you know, I gave my life to Christ. And, um, and, and I've, you know, it was, uh, it was a real strong, it was like the calling of joining the Met. This calling to listen, be vigilant, vigilant, vigilance. All the time it was vigilant. And, you know, I remember, you know, certain times Gretel will say what's wrong with you you're paranoid I said no Gretel I don't know what it is but you know just just be prepared be prepared and I think when it eventually came my way and I was being investigated I was prepared all right I was still a bit shocked when how it happened and the trial by media just so people listening know um basically um it's almost a backlash to the successes that the BPA was making in trying to change culture and trying to get things addressed um, Especially after the McPherson inquiry with the, yeah. Stephen Lawrence, yeah. Um, yeah, there was a number of investigations launched against you and, and other members of the BPA as well to try, mm-hmm. I guess, to try and undermine you, really. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And I, we were, I was definitely prepared for it because I mean, you look in history, not only in this country but abroad. You know, once you put your head above the parapet, you're on someone's target, and, and they're going to be looking for you. Um, and you don't know how it's going to happen. Hopefully, not physically. You know. Uh, or, or, but you know, especially as I say in this country, it's a lot more by microaggressions and various mm-hmm. other insidious ways in which they try and undermine you morally, um, you know, in ethically, your integrity, whatever. And um, it, it was quite clear to me that you know what they were trying to do is resurrect, um, you know, my work in the late '90s and bring it back into 2002 by saying. Oh, I didn't pay for a hotel bill in 1999 for 80 pounds. And I thought, are you serious? You know, you think I'm going to jeopardize my reputation uh, and my, uh, you know, with my, my family and, you know, the wider public and for 80 quid, maybe 80 million. I might think about it, but not 80 pounds. <laughs> you know, but I mean, it, it, it was so, it was so farcical. And so many people came to me. And, and I think this is where I just thought, Lord, you're so good. Because... I had such a, a wealth of people saying, we're praying for you. Um, 
don't worry, we, can, we know this is a witch hunt. And, you know, and I just felt that strength of people just, you know, even if they're of no faith, they had that real positive energy. And I just felt, you know, and, and I mean, the only issue was, you know, my, my youngest son, Miles, was, said to me, but dad, does that mean you're going to prison? And, you know, that, that hurt me. I thought, I've got to explain to my son, no, I'm not going to go to prison. I've got to work this out. But, you know, because I said, well, how do you, why do you think that? He said, oh, someone said in the playground that your dad's going to prison, you know, wow. in that little song. And I thought, that really hurt. But, you know, like everything, we got even stronger through that experience. You, you know what they say, if it doesn't break you, it makes you stronger. You had this wonderful thing in the book about um, uh, good times build confidence, bad times build character. Like that's yeah. obviously stuck with me, you know, I'm, like, I'm going to put that on the fridge. <laughs> so thank, thank you yeah, for that yeah. one. I can understand why Steve McQueen wants to, and John Boyega <laughs> want to play you, you know, and you, you know, yeah, I'm excited yeah. for that, like a British black story as well. Not just the yeah, American yeah. stuff, but actually a British with, with all the different contexts and nuances that, that Steve McQueen. We've had 12 years of slave, now you're going to have 30 years of cop. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the, that'd be the sequel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I wanted to ask. I mean, this book is so timely as well. I'm in the process of writing a play, which is set in Manchester, which is where I spent ten years of my childhood after Pinner. Well, I went Pinner, Zimbabwe, then Manchester. Oh wow, wow! Very, very strange journey. My parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing, we got nothing to do with Zimbabwe. My parents just decided to go in the mid eighties. Oh wow! And, then, and um, when when Zimbabwe was quite chilled at that point. Um, so we, had, we, we didn't have, yeah. it was difficult, but it wasn't as tough as, as it became. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and when we moved to Manchester, I'm, I got stopped by Greater Manchester Police for no reason and stuff like that. So like some of the stuff, it's not as bad as, as London, um, I don't think. Um, it was Gunchester at the time. So there was a lot. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. I remember it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, that, that was my sort of school walk, walking through taped off areas and stuff, you know what I mean? To, to get to my sixth form college and so forth. But um, yeah, so my play that I'm writing at the moment, it's got three time periods occurring at the same time. You've got one time period in 2019, one period in 1934, and one period in 1849. And the 1849 story, Victorian story, is about a black poet, true story about a black, rich, wealthy black Caribbean poet who lived in Manchester back in 1849. Very socially active and so forth, talking about workers' rights, but also anti-slavery, as you can imagine, and, and the fallout from that. Unfortunately, he had a big problem with drink. And anyway, the, the bottom line is he ends up dying in police custody. Wow. In 1849. I'm in the middle of writing this. I've been researching it for like two years now because it's a lot, wow. of, a lot of different time periods, lot, looking yeah. at the, the, the historical stuff of, of all three time periods and, and, and different elements of prejudice and racism that flag up and that commonality through over 200 yeah. years. Yeah. I'm in the middle of writing this. I've just finished my first draft and George Floyd happens. Wow. I'm like, okay. And it seems like, again, there's like a spiritual thing happening. Like a lot of Christians are in certain places to hopefully contribute our little two pence. I mean, you're way more, <laughs> your, your significance is a, is a lot more than a little play in Manchester. But like, um, it's all part of the, we're all building next to each other. It feels like in some way, culturally and, and spiritually. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what it's saying that, you know, it's, it's clear to me that this is not just a moment, it's a movement. You know, it's people coming together in a way that, you know, it's not just, okay, um, we'll say the right thing, but it's the doing and, and people recognising in other people it's timely, you know, and being positive for other people. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't have made it. 
up if I tried. I mean, because I didn't write this book on and off for about 10 years. And um, I was explaining to someone quite recently, maybe another interview, just how this book came about. And then, you know, finally agreeing with the publishers and even the, the, the publishers, SBCK, you know, a lot of people say, oh, go to a black publisher. And I yeah. said, well, no, I, I wanted to go to a publisher. But maybe it's, it's a cross-fertilization of ideas and we're both educating each other. And, um, and one of the things that I really, um, really wanted to, uh, which came out of not only um, that 10-year journey, but it's also how linking up with um, Steve McQueen and how he heard about my story and wanted to use that in the, the Small Act series. Uh, and then... John Boyega playing me, it actually influenced how I, I wrote the book as well. And, you know, and, and, and understanding the anchor because um, Steve McQueen, I know why he's top of his game, you know, not only an Oscar winner, but Turner Prize winner. Yeah. You, you know, that guy really needs, he, he's got, you know, this laser-like, um, I mean, I don't know if he's of faith or not, but he's got this real way of just getting right into your soul and say, what is that person and how you know and, and i think that's why i like working with john boyega because they they've got that chemistry together and um you know that that's the thing that for me how can i pen that picture of the book ties in with that series and john boyega and then the bbc are going to publish it you know transmit it well it's not by my mind but god's mind you know well uh, incredible so john boyega famously gave a, a wonderful speech a really passionate tearful speech in fact um, on the Black Lives Matter march. Did you go on? I was there. Were you there? I was, I was actually there, but I couldn't get anywhere near him. <laughs> I was surrounded by hundreds of youngsters. And, you know, we're supposed to be COVID aware, you know, social distancing yeah. masks. So I just stood back. And, you know, I, I just felt, wow, you know, that's the young man in a few months, everyone's going to know, is enacting my life. Well, that's, that's beautiful. Um, so I've got, I'm going to try and wrap it up with one kind of question, which speaks to sort of, I mean, it's so funny, like with the Stephen Lawrence stuff, um, hitting the news again yesterday. Yeah. There is obviously some stuff has changed in, in the police force. Some stuff there is, has not changed. My concern as a, as someone who, who wants to see black lives mattering is like, actually seeing well what is the change that needs to happen because we've got people talking about defunding the police force um people talking maybe more about community officers coming back i mean austerity has been horrendous in terms of like the the grassroots work that needs to do to, that needs to be done to change to change cultures and get those kids out of certain situations and knife yeah. crime um so my, my my question is like what do you think this movement Obviously, it's more than the police force. We've seen that now. But like in terms of the, the police aspect, what, what's, your, what's your recommendations? Uh? Yeah, I think the movement needs to um, have that, that pressure on political parties, uh, cross-section, you know, from the prime minister right across, um, those in authority, you know, regional mayors, local mayors in, on each of the boroughs, to, to understand that these inequalities and injustices can't continue. We need to realize that, you know, it might, you might think it's just an American thing, but we have it over here. We've had the George Floyd's, one of the cases in point I was involved in is the Rashan Charles case. And I had to, you know, speak out uh, because his great uncle, I worked with him in the Met, you know, Rod Charles, who was a chief inspector. So, you know, and, it, and he and myself worked very closely about understand that that death could have been unavoidable. And we, we got to 
uh, avoid these um, deaths. Not just death in police contact, but the, the, the street violence that we see. Uh, and, and a lot of, you know, the adverse childhood experiences and, and the toxic stress and the community stress that we, we got in most of our towns and cities that's just building. So we need to redefine and have a paradigm shift on how, you know, we as, assign certain assets. So, you know, when, when I was in Hackney in charge of the safer neighbourhood teams and the safer schools officers, if I had a problem with the youngsters, I wasn't going to bring in my officers. Very rarely uh, I, I would need to. I would bring in my youth workers. So that's why, you know, a, a lot of the defunding the police bit gets wrong. It's actually reassigning assets. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'd bring in my youth workers. If I've got a problem with young people, you know, I'd bring in the, the social care to assist with that. So, and you know, if I'm dealing with mental health cases or mental ill health, I would deal with those individuals through a triage approach with paramedics and, mm -hmm. and approved social workers and doctors, etc. So that's what that actually means. And it's part of the public health approach that's been running in certain uh, town cities in this country, in Glasgow in particular, they've been running that public health model for, for the last 10 years or so. Glasgow's been quite effective. Oh, they've reduced um, knife crime by um, 80%. And, and how they did that, um, by reducing exclusions. Great. You know, one, one of the main things. And so they, they're working with youngsters to, and the schools to have inclusion units. So you're not excluding them and they're going to alternative provision where no one monitors them or, you know, um, they're left to their own devices. Mm. So it, that's what it means about the reassigning of assets to ensure that police are not just going into certain situations and just by turning up in uniform, making it worse, you know, whether people are, are, are suffering from drug psychosis, why do we need a police officer? They need a doctor. They need a paramedic. You know, they need people who can um, deal with their problem. So it means a certain amount of the public being re-educated about, um, you know, what police's role is there to do. And I think, in closing, the, the COVID-19 um, approach has shown that the police are lacking in certain skills. And so they wouldn't, shouldn't be seen as the first port of call, you know, to educate, engage and, and enable people before you get into enforcement, you know, you know, wear a mask and, you know, yeah. you educate people, say it's good to wear a mask, social distancing, wash your hands, you know, so that we reduce the, 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 the spread of it. And, you know, long before you start dishing out fines or even um, arresting people for obstruction. So these are the sort of things that I believe is, is what's uh, necessary. But I, I just think the, the Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd and the COVID is for a reason. You know, and a lot of people, I think we're beleaguered, we're, you know, run down. It's so tough, especially for challenging areas and in challenging homes. And, mm. you know, I really, my heart goes out to some um, situations. But if we can just get through this, as I said, if it doesn't break you, it will make you. And I think it will make us a better society if we're willing to listen and to act. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.
Thank you.